Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardina Osman, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masach Abavakama, daf Kuf Gimel, page 103. Well, before we, Ann gets to a new Mishnah today, um, I want to read a story that comes up here. And I like this story because it's sort of like practical halacha that comes up here. And the stories is as follows. And they're really trying to sort of figure out an opinion of Rav uh, based on if he agrees with the, the with the sages, with the Chachamim, of those who are in the West. And this is the story that it tells. Rav Kahana Yahavezuza Akitana. So Rav Kahana gave some money for flax and he left the flax with the seller. He didn't actually pick the flax up. Lusof Yakar Kitana. Eventually the flax appreciates in value. Zabine Marvtaye de Kitana. And the owner, the original owner, the seller of the flax, sold it to a higher at a higher price. But his intent was to give the money to Rav Kahana. So let's say Rav Kahana bought the flax for $10. It appreciates and now it's worth $15. He sells it for $10 and then he's going to give Rav Kahana $5. Ata lekame de Rav. So Rav Kahana comes before Rav and he says, Amar ma'avid, what should I do? Azil ishkil zuzai, should I go and take the money? Right, because the question is, is that he's worried that if he takes the money, it looks like there was interest because since the owner of the flax sort of held his money, right? He had the $10. He never actually took the flax, right? And now you could say that he's returning money instead of merchandise because the, the merchandise was sold. So he's giving him back his money, but he's not just giving back his money. He's giving him extra money, right? He's giving him the profit as well of that appreciation of the flax. It could look like... um it could look like he, he was actually, he charged him interest. Amarle, so Rav says to him, If when the original owner sold it to this new buyer, he says this flax is kahanas, zil shakul, then you can go take the money because he made it very clear, right? The buyer understood that the money was actually getting transferred to Rav Kahana um, and, that, and that the payment was for this appreciated uh, was for this appreciated flax. So it's not that the owner was giving back Rav Kahana more money than what, you know, Rav Kahana had given him. It's that everyone understood that this flax was actually Rav Kahana's and he was selling it on his behalf. Uh, but if he didn't tell the buyer that it was your flax, you shouldn't take the additional money. Because in that case, when the buyer paid for the flax, he wanted to transfer the money to the original owner of the flax, right? In other words, he thought that he was interacting with the owner of the flax, who's the original owner, the original seller. And Rav Kahana, in a way, didn't actually acquire it. So when the original owner now gives Rav Kahana more money than he got from originally, it's as though the money is coming from him and it looks like interest. And that would be the problem. So the Gemara wants to know, come on, who is Rav's opinion like? Kivnei Marava de Amri, right? We could say it's like those in the West, Right, who said, and what did they say? Who notified the owner of the wheat to transfer the wheat to the owner of the money. Okay. So what essentially this is saying is, is that Rav is basically has an assumption that the buyers, right? It, Rav's, Rav's ruling has to do with whether or not the buyers knew that the flax was actually Rav's kahanas and that what they were, or, or is what they were paying their money is that they really just thought was going to the original owner. So regardless of whether they were told or not, the flax does really belong to Rav Kahana and the original owner sold it on his behalf. So what we can assume is, is that the seller 
you know, so this is really what the machlokas is. Machlokas that we saw earlier in the... It's discussed earlier. It's not, you know, that either one opinion would basically said that the seller always intends to transfer the item he sells to the owner of the money, meaning not to the one with whom he actually conducts the transaction. In this case, that would be the original owner, but whoever actually owns the money. And that would be Rav Kahana. That $10 that he paid for the flax is actually his money. Okay. So that would be uh, one way of... uh, that would be one way of looking at it. And so in our case, the buyer, right, means to transfer the money to the owner of the flax, who's actually Rav Kahana. And therefore, there, there isn't an issue about there being like an interest problem here. But Rav basically says that if the buyer wasn't notified about this additional payment, right, then it could look like it's interest. And he's agreeing with the sages of the West, okay, the, those who are in the West, right, who say that the seller, unless he's notified, means to transfer the sale item to the one with whom he's transacting. In other words, when you buy something from someone, you assume that person is basically the owner and that's who you think you're doing your transaction with. They wouldn't know that they're doing the transaction uh, on behalf of, that that original owner was doing the transaction on behalf of Rav Kahana. So if the buyer wasn't notified that the flex actually belonged to Rav Kahana, um, then really when that new buyer came, he intended to transfer the money to the seller with who he's, you know, having this transaction is, who's the original owner of the flax. So the owner of the flax, the owner of the flax, when he gives the money to Rav Kahana, it could appear like interest. Now, again, it's not that it is interest, but the idea here is, is there's a sensitivity of not even wanting to appear that it could look like interest. Now, the Gemara is going to come ahead and is going to reject um the, you know, th- that maybe Rav agrees with those who are in the West um, uh, and uh, that, you know, uh, and that, uh, well, let's see what they do here. Now, did Rav Kahana give the original owner of the flags for Zuzim and take back aid in exchange, right? So that the additional, so that it would actually look like it was interest. Kitna mimalehu di yakar. Right, the the story that we're telling her is that he paid for flax, and then the flax appreciated on his own. So, in other words, when Rav Kahana paid the lower price for the flax, he didn't have any intention to receive money in return. Right, so um, so when he accepts that greater amount, why would it be considered to be interest? His intent was just to own the actual flax, and it would get delivered to him or brought to him later. So, even though the flax is with the original owner. Right, it did fully belong to Rav Kahana, and so any appreciation basically goes to him. And had the flax gotten delivered to him, and he decided to sell it once he had it, it would have just uh, it would have just gone to him. So Migzal Gazule. Um, so if Rav Kahana already owned the flax, and when the original holder sold it without his permission, they kind of robbed it from him. Right. In other words. How did the original owner have permission to actually sell it at all? He 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 took something that wasn't his. Utnan, and we learned in a, in a Mishnah, and this is quoting a Mishnah from Arma Sechad a ninety three B. Kol All robbers pay as if the time of the robbery. So all the original owners required to pay Rav Kahana is the value of the flax at the time that Rav Kahana actually bought it. So Rav Kahana bought it for. $10. He only needs to give him $10. Okay. He doesn't need to give him more than that. So, um, so it's not really, 
an issue of interest because there really wasn't ever a loan. So they don't like this understanding. And now they're going to try to explain this a little more, you know, a a little bit more, a different approach uh, of what, why Rav actually made this ruling. Imri, they said, Hatam Amana Have. All right. There was an arrangement of trust. All right. That in other words, Rav Kahana sort of gave the seller the money for flax in the future. Vulo Mashve Rav Kahana Liktina. But Rav Kahana did not perform Meshicha uh, on the flax. So what Meshicha is, is that there are different ways that you can acquire something. And what that means is drawing near. And that's a legal act of a Kenyan, right? For movable objects. So in other words, when you buy something that's a movable object, the way that you show ownership for it is by drawing it into your domain. So he never actually did Meshicha on the flax. But Rav Latame and Rav, right, who basically told Rav Kahana that to accept the profit from the sale could only be unless the seller, the original owner, had notified the buyer that the flax was actually Rav Kahana's. He has his reasoning, to Amar Rav, because Rav says, Osin Amana Bepeirot. One can make an arrangement of a trust for future, you know, for delivery of produce. In other words, you pay the money, but you're not going to get it till later. But you cannot make an arrangement of trust for repayment of a future cash value uh, of, of, um, uh, of, of produce. So what it's basically saying is, is that this type of arrangement, okay, is only allowed if the produce is going to be delivered, delivered on a specified delivery date. But it's forbidden to do this, that the seller, right, for the seller to pay the cash value of the goods that he's supposed to deliver instead of the goods himself, right? Because he received money from the buyer and even, and and he returns more money, right? Then it looks like it's interest. That's what the issue is, is that he can't do it with money, right? He was supposed to really deliver it. And so he has to deliver it. It's okay to make an arrangement where you're not going to uh, buy the you buy the item. There's a transaction of cash, and you're going to get it delivered later. But it can't be that sort of like the own the seller sort of uses that item for something else. So Rav basically ruled that if the seller notified the buyer that the flax was actually Rav Kahana's, and the buyer transferred the money directly to Rav Kahana, then it would be permitted for Rav Kahana to take the money. But if the seller didn't notify the buyer that he was selling the flax uh, for Rav Kahana then Rav Kahana would be prohibited to take the money from the seller. And that's really what it's saying is, is that, yes, the buyer, the second buyer, he can give that extra money to Rav Kahana, but it can't be that he gave the money to the seller and then the seller, uh, you know, and then the seller gives it the, sorry, and then the original owner gives it to Rav Kahana. And again, it has specifically to be in a case where Rav Kahana never did Meshicha on the flax, where he never actually took, did a true Kenyan and 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 truly owned it. Um, so this is an interesting uh, discussion, and it gets into uh, some other, you know, machlokas with Rabbi Yochanan and Rabbi Shmuel Bar Sarstai. Uh, uh, um, I didn't get into the whole thing, but what I liked about this whole uh, couple of things I just want to point out here. First of all, I love the idea that Rav Kahana goes to Rav to salva halachic issue. Like, I think it just shows that there is some hierarchy with the Amorayim, right? That Rav was, you know, sort of like the postsake, even for somebody like Rav Kahana. Um, and second of all, this whole idea that even something looking like interest, and we're going to talk about interest much later on, it's not really the primary focus of this Masachat, but the idea of something even looking like interest is really 
uh, is just something that we don't allow. It's not good. And that this Doraisa, this Torah prohibition against interest is taken so seriously that we don't even want there to be a whiff uh, of something looking like it could possibly be interest. I think the hierarchy is well established. I mean, I don't know that we know everybody in order, but, you know, yeah, I think that that's a, a given. Um, what I find particularly interesting is the second thing you said, which is the interest being of such grave importance, meaning it's a mitzvah, right? it's a Torah mitzvah to not charge interest. So that in and of itself should make it important. But it does seem to be that the length to which they go to avoid even the appearance of smacking of doing the wrong thing um, are much greater here than in other arenas. And I think we should keep that as an open question as to why that might be, you know, Nowadays, I would say, oh, because of the reputation, anti-Semitism, Middle Ages, moneylenders, and usury, and so on. But I'm not sure that that was yet relevant. Like, all of that kind of stereotyping and, and so on, was that at all even in the backdrop of what's happening at the time of the Gemara? So I don't have an easy answer as to why this would be of great, such great concern, and I'm very curious about it. Okay, I'm going to move on now to the Mishnah. Um... So we have here one person who robs another person of an item that has the value of at least one pruta, meaning this is a minimal amount of theft item, which means basically, you know, anything that little of that little worth and, and, and up, right? Meaning, which means anything you steal. And then somebody, that same person takes an oath, but falsely so, to the victim of the robbery to say that he was innocent. I didn't take your stuff, right? And then later he feels bad, um, right? He feels bad and he wants to do chuve, he wants to come clean. So then he has to bring the money, which includes whatever it is that he stole or the value of it, plus an additional one-fifth, and bring that to the robbery person, to the person who's a victim of it, right? Even if what that means is he has to go track him as far away as Madai, Medea, right? Meaning once you decide you want to come clean as a robber who has made a false oath, the the onus on you is quite great, according to this Mishnah. The robber, again, this guy who wants to come clean, cannot give that payment to the victim's son, right? And say, here, give this to your father, your mother, right? He cannot give it to an agent for the for the victim. He has to give it to him, you know, directly. He can give it to an agent of the court, but not to an agent of the robber of the victim himself, um, which seems to suggest, you know, the strength of what it means that he has to actually go do this to to pay um, in person, so to speak, or nearly in person. I guess the representative of a beitin of a court is always going to be sufficient. Except in the case of if the victim died, then then he could give it to the heirs. Okay, fine. What if he gives the robbery victim the principal that he stole, right? But he doesn't give him that additional one-fifth payment. Or if the original owner forgave him on the principal that he was supposed to pay back, but he doesn't forgive him on the additional one-fifth payment. Now, why that would be, I don't know, right? I can't, it's difficult to think why somebody would 
insist on the fine of the one-fifth payment, which is obviously that much less than the amount, than the value of the principal, but okay. Machalo al ze v'lo al ze. I'm sorry. Machalo al ze v'al ze. Chutz mipachot shava pruta b'keren. Now, what happens if the victim forgave the robber about this and also that, meaning both the principal and also the chomesh, the fine paying, the one fifth on top of it, except the one part that he's not forgiving is the amount of one pruta, the value of one pruta, that's that minimal value amount of the principal. Well, to that extent, if it's only that shavapruta, then apparently, according to the Mishnah, the the robber does not need to go chase after him to the ends of the earth. Um, what if he only gave him the one-fifth payment, but he didn't give him the principal? Or if he forgave the robber, if the victim forgave the robber on the one-fifth payment, but did not forgive him for the principal, or he forgave both for the principal and also for the fine of the one-fifth, but did not forgive for the amount of one shavapruta within the principal, but in all of those cases, he would have to go chase after him um, to pay the remaining debt. So what we have here is a list of of basic conditions, right, where if he gives the, the robbery victim if the thief who has seen bet you know seen the error of his ways and wants to make amends wants to, he pays from he gave him the principal but he didn't give him the one fifth and then there's all this forgiveness possibilities right or by contrast so in that case he doesn't have to chase after him but by contrast if the victim he did give him the one fifth payment but he didn't give him the rest right the the original pr- principal then he still has to go finish paying him the debt. And again, with all these caveats of what if the um, victim forgave. Now, let's say the robber gave the victim the principal to begin with, and the false oath was only about the one-fifth payment, saying not that he didn't ever have to pay it, but that he already had, had paid it, right? Which is slimy and sneaky and gross, but okay, fine. So what he has to do, it's a really interesting um, like a, a demand on him, is that he pays an additional one-fifth on, you know, on, in, on top of the one-fifth that he already was supposed to have paid about which he took that false oath. And then if he takes a false oath about the second one-fifth that he's supposed to pay, then he's got another one-fifth, meaning he has to pay a one-fifth payment for every false oath that he ends up, uh, for everything he denies that he doesn't, ha- you know, denies having to pay. Um, until, right, until the value is of that one-fifth is going to be less than the value of a pruta, which is, again, considered such a negligible amount that we don't count it. Um, and then lastly, the mission of as the case of what about with a picadon? picadon, if there's a deposit, what does that mean? picadon, ashak, et amito, matzav al Right? Meaning these are all cases in the verse 
in Vayikra, in Leviticus chapter 5, all of these cases are where the person has, you know, basically denied whatever it is that he owes in some measure of falsehood. The person who does so has to pay the principal. He has to pay a one-fifth additional payment. And he then also has to bring a guilt offering. We don't have the guilt offering in this day and age because we don't have the Beit HaMikdash. But the bottom line is that all of this should really, um, I think, prove to us, demonstrate to us the seriousness which seriousness with which the oath about whether you paid or you didn't pay was taken. Um, the Gemara here um, obviously is going to delve into all of this, and we get into a lot of different opinions, Rabbi Tarfon and Rabbi Kiva specifically, about you know when when this decree and the, about these false oaths, how, did, how they all kick in. In the interest of time, I'm going to stop. I think that you can just read through the rest of the daf here, and you'll find the the different views here. Um, you know, the, it it reads fairly smoothly. You know, sometimes the Gemara is very convoluted. In this particular daf, I think that once you have that Mishnah, the rest of the daf follows suit. That's our daf discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this daf. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>